Welcome back to the What's Your More podcast as we do this sunrise episode here early in the morning with Mr. Daniel Halverson, our guest from Bank of England, returning co-host. Dan, thanks for being on the show this morning. Early bird gets a worm. That's right. So for our August lending update, if you're not the person that won that $1.85 billion lotto ticket next door at the Publix shopping center next to us, then this lending update's for you. So as we get started here, Dan, let's break into the, uh, the, the kind of the going headline here. $100 million going once, going twice here in our home state of Florida. We've had the Hometown Heroes product. It's been phenomenal, so phenomenal that it's just about gone is what we're hearing here. We will speak to that as we kick off and get started of what what the ramifications of this are and then kind of uh, the result of it and then what's to come down the road. Well, it's pretty shocking first and foremost when I when I saw this, you know, a week or two ago, but, you know, essentially the, the bill was passed, I think, March of this year. Um, $100 million was funded into this Hometown Heroes program. And then uh, effective July 1, they removed occupational requirements. So basically anybody that works for a brick and mortar business in Florida is eligible for the program. Yeah. When they did that, a lot of additional lenders decided they wanted to participate in the program uh, that really have historically not participated in all the other programs. And, um, you know, basically you've got um, a situation now where the funding is going to be available until probably the latter part of August. So we made yep, it. That's what we're hearing. And we made it not even 60 days and that program will be out of funds. Yeah. And I mean, it's almost like the floodgates open, you know, it was, it was, Hey, listen, this is originally chat, you know, chartered for a specific occupation. And then all of a sudden it went to, Hey, listen, basically if you live in the state of Florida and you have a job, you know, you work at Foot Locker, you're now part of this program. You're a hometown hero, you know, and I think that was, um, I think that was one of the things that's going to be redesigned moving forward when they get new funds for this product. But it, it was here today, gone tomorrow, 60 days to your point. And I mean, obviously served its purpose, but you know, is there, is there a reality that maybe some of the people that got into this program, maybe reserve some of the funds uh, prematurely, or maybe, maybe took down too many, or maybe, maybe don't know how to qualify the loan, or is this just a situation where it was just so many people took advantage of it that quickly? Probably more of the second than the first. Okay. But what's, you know, just for the audience, for clarification, the $100 million is not uh, first mortgage volume. That is just the second mortgages. So on a $300,000 loan, it's $15,000. So we're talking about $100 million worth of second mortgages that are being used up. Just to, to illustrate the levity of how much of this funding is being used and how quickly it's being used. In less than 60 days, you know, $100 million gone, $15,000 at a time. Um, and you probably have, I mean, you're going to have some fallout of people that reserve funds and then the buyer backs out on, on inspections or appraisals an issue, or they can't qualify or somebody has misqualified them for the program. Mm -hmm. Obviously like it or not, if you're newer to the Florida housing programs, you're probably going to have more fallout than somebody that's been doing it for a while. Correct. That's not to say that you don't, you know, that's not throwing shade at anybody, but the reality is you start doing these for the first time, you're going to have more fallout. So, so you'll have yeah. some fallout of... People that don't qualify that have, have maybe uh, been, they're trying to place them into the program. They don't meet the criteria. But, you know, I think the biggest thing, which which in the lending update, you know, first words were don't panic. Um, and I say that because, hey, listen, there's a lot of programs that are offered through Florida Housing that we've been doing for a long time before we got this gift horse, you know. And we had the hardest hit fund five, six years ago with that 15000 that mm -hmm. was forgiven over five years. That was another gift horse where, where all of a sudden, huge explosion of people using it. And for a number of people, yes, the Hometown Heroes program is more favorable than the other options. There's no doubt about that. However, there are other competitive options that will fill the void Agreed. and help them accomplish the goal of owning a home. So if you've got a buyer that unfortunately just is not going to make it under contract in the next three weeks, don't panic. You know, you don't have to call those people 
uh, and say, hey, it's do or die now or never. But it is a good option. It's, it's, it's a good time to say, okay, what other opportunities do we have? Is down payment assistance going to be on the table for me? Have, have, do I have higher income? And maybe the hometown hero's income limits are going to really be the only option for me. So it's, it would be a good time to go ahead and explore that. But for a lot of a lot of people that are first time home buyers, they're going to qualify for some of yeah. these other programs. Yeah, and you know, to kind of add to that, the thing about um, the thing about this is this is this is where the program kind of gets the whole department kind of gets that misnomer that they've ran out of funds. It's all over with. And then you know, you'll hear this misconception in the industry because you you kicked off with this is that a lot of people newly got into EHA or Florida housing under the premise of we're going to participate in the Hometown Heroes product, which, you know, if you're listening to this, you understand what it is. 5% of the loan amount up to 35000 as a second mortgage on this property with interest-free towards down payment, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of lenders jumped to that because there was no occupational requirements, which as you can see, led to 60-day you know, depletion of the funds. But there, to your point, there's other programs. I mean, I would venture to say there's 12 plus other programs that you can participate in, give or take, you know, to there. But the reality is, a lot of people just associate Florida housing with HTH. So when that money runs out and the expected date to your point we've heard is August 28th, just based on a forecast model, August 28th, if you're listening to this, reserve your funds by then. But then a lot of lenders are going to say they're just out of money, they're out of money, they're out of money, they're out of money. And, and a lot of agents are going to hear they're out of money, they're out of money. And a lot of borrowers are going to hear there's no more Florida housing. When in fact, there's plenty of funds, plenty of opportunities into your point in 10 to 12 other programs. And, and that's yeah. something that we want to get real clear to the audience here is that there's still other opportunities. They're just not as attractive as this one for uh, for the down payment purposes. Correct. And the other thing that I mentioned is, you know, a lot of the buyers utilizing this program right now are doing so simply because it's available. Ooh, good point. And that's the same thing that happened with the hardest hit fund. And can, you, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yes, especially with the hardest hit fund when, they, like I said, that was five, six years ago. But those funds were fully forgiven over five years. Mm-hmm. So what you had is you had people that had their own money. Maybe they have 10% down payment and the $15,000 puts them closer to 20%. So they're saying, okay, well, I'm just going to subsidize my own down payment with this money right? to really sweeten the deal for myself. But I have the ability to buy a house without this program. So does that bow the argument that you just said it, but I'm going to ask it again, that there are people that this, this program is designed for affordable housing. It's just, it's actually referred to as the affordable housing product. It's there to help those that don't have the down payment assistance. But what's happening is I would argue the majority of the people taking advantage of this product absolutely have access to funds, but they're jumping in here and using that. And historically that hasn't been a concern for Florida housing because the downside to the down payment assistance programs have been rates are often a good bit higher. Ooh, another good point. Which is not where we're at in the market right now. And in some cases, lenders can check their FHA rate sheets and Hometown Heroes has a better rate. <laughs> um, but the spread is not significant. I mean, there have been times where that spread is a half percent, three quarters of a percent, a full percent in rates. So if somebody's got the down payment funds, it's really easy to say, hey, you can get six and a half with down payment assistance or you can get five and a half without. And then, okay, well, I'm going to forego $10,000 of assistance or whatever that is because the rate differential is significant. Right. So that's part of what you're running up against right now. And I don't think you can say that somebody that has money saved up is less deserving of the funds than somebody that doesn't have the funds saved up. But I think that the, the big the big takeaway, the reason I say that is you're, you're really, you've got a limited number of buyers that fall into this hometown heroes or bust category where mm-hmm. they make a high enough income or they don't qualify for some of the other programs. Um, and really, it only makes sense for them to buy if they can use Hometown Heroes. There are those people out there, 
Unfortunately, they may find themselves on the wrong side of this. Right. But you're talking about one in 10. Yeah. So let's give some high level uh, information that we have that maybe the audience doesn't have. And even some of our competitors don't have. Daniel, you and I have a wonderful relationship with Chip White. Matter of fact, he was on our show. I think it was like episode 55. Chip joined us. Talked a little bit about the rollout of this program. Ironically, the program was like in June and now the program is getting ready to be depleted to your point. But you know, Chip's a wealth of knowledge and a straight shooter and uh, has always been a, a good adversary for us. Um, and one of the things he told us was the date, August 28th. That's how we're operating off of. He, he, you know, he divulged that to us. But he also said that when they get the, this program will be back next year with funding. So the kickoff year is going to be in January. They'll get more funding for this product. He already hinted pretty much that there's going to be occupational restrictions on this. They're going to go back to the original version of this, maybe add a couple of occupation, like instead of saying this particular section of the hospital, Hey, if you work at a hospital, all of you, you know, um, but maybe avoid the footlocker situation, nothing against footlocker, but the hometown heroes should be, they want to guide it more towards first responders, nurses, teachers, et cetera. Um, community-oriented jobs, if you may. And then um, the other thing that uh, he, he might have made mention to in that in that program that we're seeing here is that, you know, they're going to require participation in multiple products, not just one from all lenders. And so if you're a lender, again, that just associated, you know, the product as hometown heroes, you're going to need to back up and learn those other 10 to 12 products and participate in those lanes as well because you can't, they want to make sure you're actually a providing affordable housing across the area of, of the state of Florida, not just taking advantage of one. And one of the questions he asked was a suggestion of, do you put an asset test on the applicant to see if they need the loan versus taking advantage of the loan? thought that was interesting too, that they're evaluating an asset test. Well, and that's similar with USDA financing as well. Sure. If you have the, the means to put 20% down, you don't qualify for USDA. So it wouldn't be unheard of for something like that, but I think it, yeah, there's, there's probably arguments both ways, but I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. Yeah. I know that he asked, um, our take on that and, um, my back and forth on it was, you know, you can't associate a credit score with assets. Uh, you can't associate, there's no, there's no direct correlation is what I'm trying to say. Cause he was trying to figure out, well, is there, is there a correlation between the two? And I was like, not really. I mean, everything comes in a very unique scenario when it comes to mortgages. Um, but it was interesting their, their, their thought process on it. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about, you know, as we're talking about this program and we're talking about why it ran out of funds is because some of these home prices have jumped up so much. I mean, we're seeing $600,000 loans be done on the hometown heroes. And it's because, Hey, we have found a new peak in home prices. And just when, you know, you think, when is the height? Are we at it? Are we at it? Here comes another price push on homes. And that's because of the lack of inventory and what's going on around the country as the home prices continue to keep raising. And really, you know, I said on a webinar yesterday, and it appears there's only about five major metros in the whole United States that have more inventory now than they did in 2019. Five metros. There's a lot more metros that don't. And we're so we're speaking to the bulk of the United States here. There's just there's no inventory. So when you have a huge demand and no inventory, we're starting to see all these price points raise. And so here in Jacksonville, you know, Black Knight released some data specifically to us. You know, if you want to touch on that about where home prices are and where they're going. Well, you know, I haven't historically included home price appreciation data mm -hmm. in uh, the lending updates, but I have been for the last few months um, just because I think it's, it's super interesting uh, if you look at the major aggregators of price appreciation data, you know, four of the five are saying we found a new peak in home prices somewhere between February and June of this year. 
The only one that's not reporting a peak is Case Schiller, and their data doesn't come out until the end of August. So, uh, for June, rather. Right. So I'd be surprised if that data that comes out in August for June does not report a, a peak in home prices, according to Case Schiller as well. But I, I just think it's super interesting because, you know, for all of the things that happened last year, inflation goes up, interest rates go up, you know, the market changes significantly. Uh, the doom and gloom, the naysayers, the the housing market crash, um, you know, and, and here we are now, home prices are at peaks. We've been at mortgage. We've been at elevated mortgage rates for a while now. I mean, the summer months have been high sixes, seven, yeah. uh, touching above seven, and here we are with still, you know, elevated home prices. And it appears, if you look at the trajectories of the forecast, depending on each of those five sources, anywhere from five to ten percent uh, appreciation year over year. And I think that bodes the question, and I, I think it's worth asking here. And, and I love getting and debating maybe maybe this this conversation is. Why is it with rates at 18-year highs, you know, and, and in some cases, some might argue 20-year highs, but nonetheless, they're high. How is it home prices are going up? That should that, should that, I mean, theoretically, that should not be happening, right? This raising of rates should deter the product price on any product out there. You've seen it happen with cars. You've seen it happen with other product items that are financed but yet homes continue to go up. And you can see the notion why so many insiders and so many people that are wishing and hoping there's going to be a crack in the in the armor there. You're going to have a bubble. You're going to have a collapse. But yet it's not happening. And it's not even looking like it's going to happen. Even in some of those sub-markets, they're retaining the price point. They're not necessarily going down. So how is it housing is continuing to rise? Well, supply-demand is the, the easiest answer, yep. right? Um, just continues to be the case that there's less and less inventory. If you look at uh, inventory nationwide right now, there's less inventory right now than there was um, 2022, 2021, 2020, 2019. So it keeps going. You and you could talk about the mortgage lockout and and you know people have these low rates. They don't want to move. You could talk about building supply is not caught up with demand. You know we're still not even pacing to build enough inventory to satisfy household formations. So at a macro level, we're not making enough housing right, we're not for the number of houses up. that are being formed. And that doesn't even account for the people that don't want to move. You right. know? So uh, so it's really just simple supply-demand dynamics that that's keeping prices this way. And, and really it's... So the other component of, of this is, and I've run these little scenarios before, and if you're in the lending world or the real estate world, you've probably seen these charts of you know cost of waiting, of, of buying a house. And I here's do what love these. Here's what it could be mm -hmm. if you wait and you're probably thinking, well, who cares, right? But but buyers have to see this stuff, you know. This can't be a, well, I can buy a house. It needs to turn into a, well, I should buy a house. And then it needs to turn into, well, I must buy a house, right? Correct. Because if you don't buy a house right now, you are, there is a concern that you could be priced out of the market for the foreseeable future. And then you're in a situation where you can't buy in the city that you want to buy in, you know. Um, but but I just ran a simple chart, which yeah, I'm sure you guys will include this somewhere. Yeah, here. if you want to take a look at this chart, go to our YouTube, look us up at what's your one more with number one, subscribe. It'll be in our show notes. You can take advantage of a look at this. But uh, but the general premise was just I just took a $350,000 house. If you buy it now, it's 7% versus if you wait a year from now. Uh, I used a 575 rate as an example. We certainly would love to see rates go to 575. That's obviously purely speculative. Um, but assumed a 10% appreciation, which I realize that's on the top end of the appreciation scale. Mm -hmm. yep. um, but in Jacksonville, we very well may hit that that number. So, um, and, and showed, hey, listen, 
yeah, you'd you'd be paying a little bit more if you paid three eighty five for the house at five seven five, but it is not even close to if you bought the home now and then refinanced the loan down to five seven five, and we're able to lock in the the lower price. I mean, the the savings is considerably greater. So, you know, the premise is, hey, if you wait for lower interest rates. Um, prices are going to go up. You're not going to get the benefits of the amortization right. on the loan either. So a lot of times people just look at this and say, well, now I'm paying 35000 more for the home, but it's actually more than that because you've got a year of amortization on the loan as opposed to just paying rent. Yep. Um, and this logic applies to people that want to buy a move-up home as well. Mm-hmm. And, and even even more so to the extent that, hey, you know, if if I'm talking to Quentin and he wants to buy a $600,000 house and sell his $300,000 house, well, if both properties appreciate by 10% over the next year, the number's a lot bigger on the house you want to buy Correct. than the one you have right now. So, and, and you know, that's not me saying, hey, everybody move right now because uh, I said so. But, you know, the, if you think you're going to move anyway, waiting may not, I mean, waiting will not benefit you on a $600,000 house, even at 5% appreciation. What is that, $2,500 a month? So every month right. that you wait, that home becomes $2,500 more expensive. So, so I kind of want to, I want to, dive this down for our agents and kind of bring this to where the audience can also understand it. And the, the way I kind of look at it is this, is that if I'm a buyer, I've got to quit trying to understand the housing market from this perspective. I got to quit holding on to the idea of, I want, I want to get a deal like they did in 2010, or I want to get the price of 2018. Because, you know, there's not many there's not many chances that's going to happen, but quit treating real estate like that. You're buying the now. And the reality is you just gave them tons of reasons. There's a lot to unpack there, but the reality is it's a simple economic formula. It's a principle. That's why it's holding up. It's a principle, supply and demand. And you just stated multiple reasons why the supply is not going to meet the demand for years to come. So from a buyer's perspective, quit trying to think you're going to get a deal that that was a once-in-a-lifetime moment that happened in a depression crash caused by real estate. We're not living in that world. So you're not going to get those prices. You need to settle in, in today's prices knowing that it's going up. Start thinking of it like you would a mutual fund, like you would a stock. Stop stop trying to go um, – you would never go to a, a – you would never go to a mutual fund and go, yeah, but I want the price point from 2010. I'm thinking the fund's going to crash. You would never operate. You put money in the fund. You continue to compound money in that fund. And you hope that the fund is going to go up because traditionally we can show you a 7% increase. Well, guess what we can show you in real estate? A hell of a lot greater than 7%. And if we show you by the decades, you're seeing double digits by decades, including the depression that was in there too. So there's a, you need to change your mindset on how you look at that and quit trying to evaluate a price point that doesn't exist anymore. And if I'm a real estate agent, I'm going to tackle this with my buyers of missed opportunities and know that things are coming on the horizon and maybe even treat them from the standpoint of like, listen, when you look at landscape, do you think that palm tree, the way it looks today was planted day one and looked like that? I mean, it could be, you're going to pay day one price, but the reality is it's probably planted years ago. So you've got to, you got to think of it like I'm planting a tree that's going to grow with appreciation down the road. And I'm not going to go back in time and get these price points. Like that's got to stop. And I love this illustration, the cost of waiting, because it really just breaks it down. And you've got to understand that if, if you continue to wait, you're at your own detriment. You're the only one holding yourself back. And yes, these rates are temporary. And even if you get one now, you're not married to it. I mean, we've heard the old adage, you know what I mean? You know, marry the house, date the rate. You can turn around and refinance that later. We've heard that. We've seen all the memes. But that is a truth. I mean, 
you own a home. How many times have you refinanced a home that you own? I mean, the average consumer will refinance their home three times if they keep it longer than seven years. And the reality is 90% of all mortgages in the United States are 6% or below right now. Right. So, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, there's going to be an, a, a time in which this happens. Now, obviously, our timelines have been off here because of multiple things, SVB, debt crisis. We can go on and on and on. But when those rates do come down, it's going to be a feeding frenzy on the inventory that is available, and there's going to be musical chairs of people switching homes to get another home, switching homes to get another home. The lock-in effect will start to dwindle, and people will unlock their homes and go get another home, and it will be a flurry of price points. These 5 to 10% peaks that we're talking about, they're going to look like minimal peaks compared to what is going to happen when that time comes. So take advantage of what Daniel's saying right now. And I mean, I know he said, don't move on my account, but you might want to think about moving on your own account. You might want to think about buying on your own account because these are missed opportunities. You're going to look back and you're going to kick yourself and say, should have, would have, could have during that time. Yeah, just two other things on that really quickly. When you buy a house today, you won't know how good of an investment that was for three, four or five years down the road, generally speaking. Generally. Similar to if you buy a stock, obviously, you know, maybe that time time runs a little bit different, but- Mm -hmm. The, the people, that, a lot of times the investors that come to us and say, hey, uh, I want to buy an investment property, having trouble finding a deal mm-hmm. that really looks really, really good. The advice I always give those people is, hey, the people that bought a deal and the, that you're looking at now, when they bought that five or six years ago, it probably didn't look like the deal that it did. But what's Correct. happened is they bought the house, it's gone up in value, rental prices have Correct gone up point. considerably. Maybe they've refinanced the loan. Maybe they haven't, but what looked like probably a base hit five years ago looks like a double or a triple right now. Right. And same thing with buying a primary residence. You won't know how good of a decision that was until four or five years down the road, probably, right? That's correct. How's that home going to appreciate? You know, what is this home going to mean for my family? Mm -hmm. You won't know those things until much farther down the road. Uh, History tells us that it's probably going to be a really good decision. And the, the other thing that I'll say is, with respect to this cost of waiting and and uh, strategies with buyers, you know, if you're a real estate agent listening to this and you're taking on a buyer, they've got a pre-approval, they're ready to go, we need to have an honest conversation about what is our strategy to get this buyer under contract? Right. Is this a buyer that thinks that they can go offer 90% of list price on every property? Is this somebody that needs a seller concession to make their, their deal work? Is this somebody that can truly offer a quick close? Are they, are they set up to do that? Um, I, we just see it all the time where people get pre-approved and then they start to look and then they don't buy. And a lot of times it's because there was never a clear cut and communicated strategy of what they need and how they're going to approach this to get themselves under contract. Yeah, You know, offers are being placed. Lender has no idea. Lender can't follow up with listing agents. Um, so many just little things that they're just not, properly communicated. And the result is a buyer puts four, five, six, seven offers in, doesn't get any of them and quits. So the other thing I would say is as partners, lenders that listen to this, realtors that listen to this, as partners, you need to have a strategy for your buyers of what they need. What are their hot buttons? How are we going to get them under contract? Yeah. And let's get real clear on that strategy so that we're not wasting each other's time. And are they realistic, right? Yeah. That's the other thing. If they're not realistic, then at least we know where we stand. Yeah. You can choose to write five offers or you could not, but at least we know where we stand. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. 
I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. And as we turn to the, the final piece of our lending update here, you know, we always try to tackle rates on the back end of this little bit of, you know, commentary on inflation. And before we got started with this, Dan said, I got a lot to talk about on this lending update. Uh, typically about 15 minutes, we're going to go over that today here. But, you know, is inflation really the problem for interest rates? You know, that's kind of the headline here. You know, I think I could argue both sides of this, but the reality is rates are higher this lending update than they were the last lending update. Rates were lower the previous lending update. So we're seeing a big yo-yo effect here, a yin-yang effect. There are so many reasons that we could go on for hours and have multiple podcasts as to what's happening and why. The reality is we're seeing some hedge built into the market, right? We're seeing lenders price in risk in the market and potentially price in earnings because there's a whole there's a whole cycle that's taking place right now where lenders are potentially losing money when they close a loan today and delivering to market 30 days from now. So you're seeing that price in there. But let's just jump into July. Obviously, we had some great inflationary reports. Rates didn't really give as much as they wanted. We had some terrible job reports from the standpoint of beating expectations from who knows what ADP is doing and what they're not doing. We've talked about that at length. Then we had the BLS report. But let's just kind of dive right into it. And, and Dan, get your take on what is what is really kind of unfolding in front of us and is inflation really the problem? Yeah, and if nothing else, uh, a, spirit, a spirited debate. You know, there's just, there's a lot of things right. to consider. But- um, first and foremost, it's August 9th as we record this. I think last time we uh, did this, it was right as the CPI was coming out. Yep. Uh, doing it again, CPI comes out tomorrow. Doubling down. So, <laughs> but but June CPI released in July. Yep. Absolute banner month for inflation. The headline jumped, uh, went from 4% to 3%. So a mm-hmm. 25% reduction in inflation. And that's all the way from 9.1% peak in June of 2022. So you look at that and you say, okay, uh, and, and I looked, mortgage rates changed by uh, one one-hundredth of a percent uh, in the month of July. So we get this monster inflation news and mortgage rates as unchanged as they could possibly be. One one-hundredth percent means 0. 0.01 to 0. 0.0. <laughs> Correct. Okay, just make sure the audience understood that. Yes. So, um, so absolutely nothing good happens for rates. And you're thinking, okay, well, if, if you listen to any major economic news, or if you listen to this podcast, you guys, you told me inflation was going to impact interest rates, right? What's going on? Because that's an economic principle. That's sure. a principle, right? Sure. It's not a but forecast. You, but you're thinking, okay, so every month you come in here and you tell me inflation is lower, but mortgage rates are not lower. So mm-hmm. is it in, so we do, we have an inflation problem. The first thing I would say to that is that's the headline number. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the core rate of inflation, which strips out food and energy. The core rate went from 5.3 to 4.8. Yes, that's a meaningful move lower. Correct. But you've got 4.8% on the core. You got 3% on the headline. 
the feds basically say, hey, we don't really care about the headline because we think that core is more indicative of monetary policy. So the fact that it's so much higher is saying what food or energy prices are being that much lower, more yep. being lower is what's really accelerated this inflation. And I looked the other day, you know, oil's around eighty dollars a barrel barrel right now. It means they're up because last quarter they were down sixty eight. And and it peaked last year, it peaked at $128 a barrel. Correct. So yes, we're getting some benefit of oil prices having come down from $128 a barrel to $80 a barrel even now. We're getting the benefits of that in inflation where we're not going to see those big moves lower anymore. Um, so the market is kind of on a standby a little bit. And, and hey, one general rule of thumb that people say on, on interest rates is inflation plus two. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're using the core rate as our inflation rate of 4.8, inflation plus two is pretty much where we're at right yeah, now. Pretty close. So the markets are saying, hey, we see that headline inflation is coming down, but we also see the core is not coming down as quickly and we're anticipating the road from 4.8% to 2%. It's going to be a lot longer and bumpier of a road than this move on the headline from 9% to 3%. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why you're not seeing the rates come down as quickly. We're still confident that the core rate will be coming down because shelter costs are just now finally starting to decrease in the CPI, in, in the inflation data. Right. So I think I saw something the other day, if you replace what's currently being calculated as a shelter cost with the true shelter cost right now, you've got core inflation closer to 4%. Uh, if you look at PCE, which we can talk about in a minute, it's even lower. Right. But when you start factoring in real-time shelter data, inflation on the core still has room to come down. Um, so we still feel confident that that will continue to happen. But the markets are reacting to the fact that core is 4.8%. They don't really care about the headline of 3% because what is going to impact monetary policy is going to be the core rate. Yeah, and, you know, as we shift in towards the, the second version of, of inflation, the PCE, which is what the Federal Reserve monitors. That first one you talked about was CPI. That impacts the consumer. The the PCE is the personal consumption expenditures, which is what we're spending, right? Not what yep. the prices are. This is what we're spending. And so the Federal Reserve looks at that because naturally what you're spending does result into inflation. The product dictates what the price is going to be. But when you're spending, that's how much outflow is going out of the, the, uh, the, you know, the households. And so when they take a look at this, you know, even as we jump into this, I think just for our audience, it's not a monthly reading. It's a 12-month average of the monthly reading. So we've talked about this. We've illustrated that each month you're replacing the previous 12th month of that reading. And so that's why you can forecast, hey, we're replacing higher readings in certain aspects. And as that shelter starts to come down, we can see and forecast why that number would come down. But it's not a cliff. It's a gradual step each month. And so that is where the, um, for those that don't have patience or like, hey, when's this going to hit? When's this going to hit? It takes time for that 12-month average to go down. Even if you replace it with a huge number, it takes time to go down. And so that's what we're seeing here. But the Federal Reserve, I think, has seen that. And they've also kind of admittedly said, hey, listen, we realize we're not going to hit the target 2% until sometime in 2025. Like they've, that, their last commentary said that. They also acknowledge that they feel like they could pull off the brakes and still reach target two, they, meaning they're going to go into quantitative easing. They could, because they said their, their policy would go from more restrictive to more accommodating as they turn into 2024. And that's kind of the signal for quantitative easing as it comes. But the things they're looking at is this PCE. And PCE, just like CPI, has a headline and it has a core. And so, Dan, if you want to talk a little bit about that headline and core, which is, you know, 
very much in line with, you know, very much in line with the CPI, just a little bit higher yeah. in some cases. Big news. I mean, big, big move lower. So PCE 3.8 to 3%. So matching headline inflation at 3%. Yeah. The core decreased from 4.6 to 4.1%. So it's lower than the core mm-hmm. um, on the, the CPI data. Correct. So once again, good news. Um but I, but the yeah, the other thing that I kind of wanted to, to shift to a little bit here was was you know I say I've said this a few times around yep. our, our LOs you know, inflation was nine percent mortgage rates were seven percent inflation's three percent mortgage rates were seven percent so what's going on right right um, and and I think that there's really two things and first and foremost uh, the markets didn't believe that the nine percent inflation was legitimate right mm-hmm. otherwise mortgage rates would have been double digits correct. The markets are also not entirely confident that we have conquered inflation, and that's being reflected in the pricing. And you've got some other macro things going on that we couldn't possibly have foreseen that is certainly impacting uh, rates not being lower. But the reality is, if the markets felt like we were on a straight path down to significantly lower inflation on the core, mortgage rates would be lower. Correct. So there's still some wait and see on that. But the other component here is, the feds really, they're not going to come out and say this, but they want job losses. Correct. And they can't say that and be politically correct, right? They call it the softening of the job market. That's yes, how they, say they say softening of the job market. They want a soft landing. But the reality is they're not going to be satisfied until they see job losses because they don't see a way to get from 4.8% on the core to 2% without people losing their jobs. Because if you lose jobs, you don't spend money. Correct. They don't see a way. You can argue all day. Is it necessary? Is it not necessary? Do we need a job loss recession to get inflation down? You could argue it both ways. Right. But the reality is the Federal Reserve's example they keep referring back to is 1970s inflation. What happened? Humongous job loss recession to conquer that. Do do they think that they need the same level of a job loss recession? No. But, you know, unemployment's still at 3.5%. And you can poke holes in the uh, you can poke holes in the jobs data all day long. You right. can take the ADP report, crumple it up, throw it in the trash, completely worthless. You could poke holes in these job creations. We know that almost a million of them were part time jobs in this mm-hmm. last job report. So you can poke holes in it all day long. But the reality is, inflation or unemployment is still three and a half percent. Wage growth is still positive. Now it's flattening significantly, but it's still positive. And until they see you know, hours worked is going down, which is an indication that people don't want to lay off their, their staff, but they also can't afford to continue to pay them as much money. So you're seeing, you're seeing weakness in the labor market. You're, in the job report that we got in the end of July, uh, a week ago, as we're talking here, mm-hmm. really reflected that the, the bond market was rallied significantly on the heels of that job market. So you're seeing less creation of jobs you're seeing wage growth go down. You're seeing a lot of softness in the labor market, which is what they want to see. They just want to see more of it, you know. And, right. and initial jobless claims have still been in the 220,000 range. They probably want to see that number break into the 250, 270, maybe even 300,000. So they they want to see the job market start to break before they will be satisfied enough to say we don't feel like we need to hike rates further. Until they until that happens, it's I'm of the opinion that until that happens. They're going to continue to potentially push rates, and they're going to continue to speak the jargon, you know, the Fed, the Fed hawks that mm-hmm. keep coming out and, and saying, got to do more, got to do more. They're not going to stop until they see the labor market break. Yeah, and so I think in, in the 
in the uh, spirit of a spirited debate here, I think the flip side of that coin is unemployment went down, right? No one wanted to see that in this scenario you're speaking of. But I also believe that there's some other things happening in, in the background here. While wage growth is flattening, right? Make it abundantly clear. People making more doesn't necessarily equate to inflation. It just means they're spending more. We want people to make more. Just save it. Don't necessarily spend it. And so the reality that I see in this kind of uh, in the hidden gem in this, you know, that diamond in the rough, if you may, in that PCE is the largest component of that PCE is consumer spending. And you look at the consumer spending reports on there, and we just had credit card debt crest. $1 trillion. And we've been talking for the last really 60 days that was going to happen. And sure enough, there it is. Boom, it hit a, tr a trillion with a T in credit card debt in the United States. Less than 50% of that balance is being paid off each month, meaning we're carrying a balance of $500 billion at an average rate of 23% interest. Student loan debt kicks off in October 1st for payments to start being paid back. And I think we saw where the average payment per student loan was going to be 353 you throw that budget with three, you throw that into people's budget for one student loan. Some people have multiple student loans. Just one's 353. You throw that in there because they're getting today's rates. Rates keep going up. Um, that's going to be a potential consumer issue, right? That's going to cut back on spending. That's also going to cause a little bit of turmoil on the delinquency side of things. And then the, the final product of that, that coin that I'm looking at there is the national debt. The national debt continues to keep going. It's getting ready to breach $33 you know, trillion dollars. Each time the Federal Reserve raises raises the Fed funds rate, they raise the short-term interest rates with it. Well, the national debt has over $5.6 trillion of the debt coming due in the next 60 days to be refinanced out, if you may. The, tr the, the term is coming to maturity. They're going to have to take down today's rates, which are not the same as when they booked those. Matter of fact, they're four times as much as when they booked it. And so when we ran qu quick numbers on this, the cost to refinance that $5.6 trillion that's coming due is $1.6 billion a month in interest. Like that's that's a lot of money when you take yeah, a look at it. So big at some point, we talk about the Federal Reserve goes until they break something. We've already seen they've gone from a crack to a huge gap in the banking system, what they're doing. Now they might be their own worst enemy on the national debt. This, I guess what I'm getting at is this may – they may never achieve the 2%. It's almost like a foregone conclusion. They're not going to get there. And you heard Powell say in his commentary, I, I do think the easing is coming. I think the Federal Reserve has been addicted to it since 1998 when they first started it. And they have a historical premise of saying, hey, we raise, we raise, raise. Do we have a problem? Ease, ease, ease. And and I think that I, I think that's coming. I think it's coming maybe in the fourth quarter, definitely the first quarter of 2024. But we may not achieve some of these unemployment numbers. And I think the reason we may not achieve them is because the reporting, you said it earlier, the reporting is so skewed. Well, you still have 10 million job openings. That's right. We just don't know. Plus, the work from home is a conundrum we've never had to deal with and the likes before. We don't really know what numbers are being reported where. You know, because I, I I think, you know, I had this off, off, you know, off show debate that there could be people at home working multiple jobs, sure. you know, taking up multiple jobs and it being accounted for as, you know, one or, or, or the other way around. So it's definitely different, but I think that you have a great point there about, you know, just from a, just from the glimpse of it, it's going to be hard to achieve that 2% and until unemployment gets worse in the lies of the Federal Reserve, they, you know, that gives them reason not to pause. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm of the mind at this point that you don't need a job loss recession to get inflation to move lower. You just need more time. And I think that is the part where 
there's not very much patience, you know. Right. There's a lot of patience when they dropped interest rates to zero for a decade, you know, and and a lot of this stuff was created from from free money. Ten years of that, yeah. Correct, a decade of that. But there doesn't appear to be a lot of patience on this side to let the data filter through. I mean, you've gone from 9% to 3% on the headline. You've got positive interest rates. When's the last time we had positive interest rates? Right. You know? It, I, you want to define what that means real quick? Yeah, essentially, the interest rate that you can go out and get is higher than inflation. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's been a minute. Think about that. I mean, the, the Fed funds rate was at zero for a decade, pretty much. Right. So there were no real interest rates, you know? Right. You can go put your money in a CD right now and make more than inflation. Um, CDs were paying 1% or less for the longest time. Correct. So you finally have achieved, you are in contractionary monetary policy. You are tightening. You just don't have to tighten it to the point where you're choking it, right? That's right. <laughs> so, that's where, And that's where we're, we're getting damn close to that. So the last rate hike, he, he, you know, Powell couldn't give a compelling reason for why he felt the need to hike. Kind of feel like that was a, a completely pointless thing to do at that point. But uh, the, the point of this is, um, you know, the long-term outlook on interest rates we, is still lower, right? And mm -hmm. we obviously were wrong in our prediction of how fast and when. That's the thing about predictions is you don't know. Otherwise, right. we wouldn't be doing this podcast. We'd be on a beach somewhere. Right. But, but I think it's important. We still stand by the fact that we know those are going to come down. The timeline is correct. Yep. So right now, it is that's the guessing games, the timeline. The, the absolute is that rates will come down. And the markets, in a lot of ways, are behaving very counterintuitive to what they should sometimes. Mm -hmm. And there's that's tough to predict as well. There's some some macroeconomic factors that we've talked about before right. that impact that. But the markets really are not behaving in a normal way right now. And that's a challenge to what's what's happening with interest rates as well. So yeah, we'll remain to be seen. I don't think that the inflation data we're going to get tomorrow is going to help the inflation cause in the short term. Uh, I think that over the course of the 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 months that that follow that you will see some meaningful movement in inflation. But if we come on here, you know, in a month and say, "Hey, July's inflation data not great," that's not the end of the world. It just means right. that the re reading that we're replacing was much lower for that month. So it's hard to make progress if the reading was 0.2. You know, if you have a 0.2 or a 0.3 on inflation, that's not much inflation, but that reading could go up. So. Yeah, and I would expect this reading to go up in the headlines, and we 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 do we've expected that because you're at three now. But watch for the core; it could come down a little bit. You know, if your core comes down, remember that's ignore the headlines. Look at the core; that's what everyone's looking at. And what we want to see is the core come down. And if it comes down, the headline goes up. That's a win. I think everybody needs to wrap their head around that. And, you know, I know we went into a deep dive on, on rates and inflationary policy here, but I think it's important we continue to hammer home the principles of why this is happening and also look at what could cause the flip side of this coin going to easing. Great job on the inventory. Great job on the price appreciation. You know, if you're an agent listening, you're a mortgage person listening, or if you're a buyer listening, I think we probably gave you a handful of reasons that are foundational economic principles as to why real estate is not a bad thing right now and why it's not going to collapse, you know, and why that was so much different than 2010 and 2009, the principles were flipped, right? Completely flipped. More supply, a whole hell of a lot less demand. And, you know, when you look at that, you look at rates, rates are not where you want them right now, but they're probably going to be in the foreseeable future, 18 months or so. You're going to absolutely get what your target rate is. You can refinance at that point. But I love how you eloquently laid out the cost of waiting. 
And we're going to put that graph in our YouTube uh, channel on there. You'll have a link to look at it here. Remember, that's what your one more if you would subscribe on YouTube. But man, this is great stuff, Dan. I know we took a little bit longer than normal, man. I appreciate your time today, but thanks for coming on the show and uh, really just dropping some great knowledge for our audience on here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me as always. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, if you like this podcast, please five-star review it. Share it, Apple with a friend, with a family member, with a colleague, a future buyer, uh, a seller at this time. We'd love for you to kind of take a look at our podcast, give us some commentary on there. That's real important to us. We love tackling topics you guys are putting on there. Check us out at Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and then also on YouTube. And then finally, check us out on our socials at What's Your One More with the number one. That's at What's Your One More with the number one. Till next time, Dan, thanks for being on the show, my friend. Yes, sir. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.